Amen. Please be seated. Now, again, I'd like to welcome you. If you are a, a visitor here, it's your first time here, you're very welcome. Um, I'm sorry if you're a visitor and you had to go upstairs with all the peasants, but um, <laughs> no, they're fine people up there. Um, we do remember also, those of you who are students, uh, uh, we, the Abertay CU Missions Week has just gone, and the Dundee University CU Missions Week is just starting. And uh, Chris is going to say something more about that this evening, uh, but do remember especially Andrew Bannister as he is uh, speaking at that. Now, maybe before we read the passage I want us to look at, uh, let me just introduce this in this way. Thinking, thinking of those who are students, you know, some of you are studying, I meet you at the door, um, you're young, you're female, I assume you're from Northern Ireland and studying medicine, but maybe that's not the case, maybe you're doing something else. Um, but I'll guarantee that no student here is doing this course, and that is what is on offer at the moment at the University of Yale, which along with Oxford, Cambridge, Abertay, and Dundee is the top university in the world. And uh, at the University of Yale, there is a course just now, an undergraduate course in happiness. So you can study happiness. Now, I'm sorry, but the way that my mind works, I just thought, how bad must it be to fail a course in happiness? How unhappy is that going to make you? You know, it's just, it, it's unbelievable. Now, here's the incredible thing. You sign up for these courses in Yale. 25% of the undergraduate body, which is around 2,000 students, have signed up for it. And other courses are complaining because people are, are not going to them. They're going for this course in happiness. And I had a look at things it offers. You know, it gives you bits of advice like don't procrastinate and, and, and things like that. Now, why, why do I say that? Because what we're going to look at uh, this morning for free is the real source of real happiness, real contentment. Do you know, actually, the thing that amazes me about Yale, Yale's the elite of the elite. 50% of the students suffer from depression at some point in their course in Yale. It's really quite extraordinary. They, they are the elite. They're the wealthy. They're, they're people who've made it. And yet, they're just, they're just not there. So, what we're going to look at is... And the passage we read, when we read it, let's say you are a stranger here, you've never been here before, and you're not normally used to reading the Bible, this will not sound as though it is going to tell you about happiness, but hang with us, it will. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, and uh, we're going to look from uh, verse 12, we're going to read, I want to read first of all to verse 21, and then we're going to work our way through it as we can. So Romans 5, it's on page 1132 from verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, 
the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all man, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, there's a, um, a problem, not, well, there's several, several problems here. This, these verses are very compact, they're very precisely argued, they're very tight, and they are really difficult to grasp what is being said. You can pick up different bits, but it's, it is difficult. And again, you're here, you're visiting, and you're saying, I haven't a clue what this is about. Let me tell you this, I think most people who are Christians wouldn't be able to say, now, maybe I'm being wrong. Maybe this is not fair, but um, I have to say that this is my job, if you like, to study God's Word and to look at it, and I've been looking at it for years and years and years, and this passage is just such a puzzle to me. It was, because it seemed to be saying some things that contradict other parts of Scripture, and then even within itself, it seemed to be contradicting. So I really wrestled with this, and I've, I, I was greatly blessed in looking at it and greatly encouraged by it. So... Let's get into it. It's a passage that answers phenomenal questions. Uh, Andy is going to be speaking at the Dundee uh, CU Missions Week, and you do question bars and all this. And all these questions come up. Why is there suffering, trouble, and evil in the world? What does it mean to be a human being? Where do we all come from? Why do people die? What's the good news? What happened to people who lived before Jesus? Is everybody saved? What's the difference between Adam and Christ, between the covenant made with Adam and the one made with Christ? Will the church die? Will the church grow? You know, Paul was writing a city of probably a million people. Let's be generous and suggest that the church, maybe, maybe up to 10,000, I doubt it, less than 1%. And he says things here that the people listening to it are going to say, you're kidding me. No way. Well, let's, let's look at what he says. And we'll begin by looking at verse 12, which sets the foundation. Uh, verse 12 is fascinating because he, he does a just as thing. Just as sin entered the world through one man, and then when you get a just as, you're expecting and then. But he never gets on to the and then. He gets interrupted. And that's what I love about Paul. Um, his style is rubbish uh, and doesn't fit the oratorical and he just gets carried away. And I think it's brilliant. that um, You could argue that later on verse 18 is, is the and then, but not really. It's an and then to the bit that he gets interrupted with. So he starts off just simply saying, look, sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. That's the foundation. So again, because I don't want you to be here until uh, Andrew is preaching this evening, 
I'm going to have to make this fairly concise and tight, but just hold with it. We've got to get our terms right. First of all, he says sin. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say sins. He says sin. And that's for a reason. He's teaching what the Bible or what theologians call the doctrine, the teaching of original sin. What G.K. Chesterton, the great Roman Catholic writer, called the most provable of all Christian doctrines. In other words, he's teaching that all human beings are born sinful. I know that we like to think that they're not, that that wee sweet baby Finley is just wee sweet baby Finley up at the back with his dad there in the pram, and he's just an absolute perfect, because how can he not be? His grandfather's a minister. Come on, his dad's a minister. I mean, he's got to be perfect, but he's not. He's a wee sinner, and we'll find that out when he gets to two years old, uh, possibly even before then, and you think, where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you where it came from, because it's in us as human beings, And it's in us because of Adam. Now, there's a a lot of argument, and again, I don't have time to go into all of this, but the Bible clearly teaches, and Jesus clearly teaches, that Adam was a literal person. Adam and Eve were literal people, that we have a common ancestor, and that's so important in so many ways. There are four basic races in the world, Caucasoid, Negroid, Mongoloid, and Australoid, and we all come, there's one human race though, we all come from Adam and Eve. Now that has huge consequences in terms of racism, it has huge consequences in terms of how we treat one another, it has huge consequences in terms of salvation. But we are all in Adam. We might talk about our ancestors and different backgrounds, you do your DNA and so on, but the fact is we are all human beings, we are all in Adam. And then death. That sin, when Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought death. And death here means both physical and spiritual. It means separation from fellowship with God and the subsequent mortality that comes from it. Now, the reason that we so often feel and that you and I feel that death is unfair, that there's something wrong about it, is precisely because it is unfair and there is something wrong about it. It is an enemy. It is the greatest enemy, the last enemy. But this verse doesn't just teach those things, it also teaches that all human beings are connected. And this is, this is difficult but important. All sinned. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Now, some people understand this as being all people sin like Adam. So they're saying Adam's just an example of sin. Adam means man and it's a story that tells us we're all sin. But that's not what this verse says. What it says is this, that we are all in Adam. So, I'll give you an example, Hebrews 7, verse 10. When Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Now, what's being taught there was saying, Levi hadn't been born, but he was in the body of his ancestor. And there's a connectedness between 
human beings. And what this verse is teaching us and what Paul is very strong on, what the Bible teaches is that all human beings are in Adam as our divinely appointed representative. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam died, we died. Now, our instant reaction is to say, well, where's the fairness in that? Paul doesn't answer that question. But I think that's because he thinks in a different way than we do. He thinks in Hebrew terms. He thinks in a way that most of the world thinks, but not in Greek terms and not in Western, the kind of Western philosophy that's come out of, of Greek philosophy. Because the Greek mindset was essentially an individualistic mindset. Whereas the, the Hebraic mindset, the Hebrew mindset, and the mindset of most cultures in the world has tended to be, we are who we are because of our ancestors. That's the way it is. I did not say to my mum and dad, I'd like to be born, and I'd like to be born in this place, and at this time, and in this way. That's not how it happened. I didn't get to choose my parents. I didn't get to choose my country. I didn't get to choose my sex. I didn't get to choose my circumstances. That's, I was born, and I have, um, I guess, I could work back, and I could say, well, this is what my... My mom and dad did, and this is what my granny and granddads did, and, and so on, and, and, and work back and look at all of that. And there's a genetic component to my life that makes me the way that I am. There's a historical component. There's a cultural component. And we know that that is true. But that is also true of us being born human. Being born human means that we're in Adam. Being born human means that we're born as sinners. Now, it is also true, and I think that the Bible tells us that God judges us because of our own sin. I think it's specifically that. The dead were judged according to what they have done. But we sin, if you like, because we are in Adam. So all of us, this is a difficult teaching, but what he's saying is all of us, by virtue of our relationship with Adam, are sinners under a sentence of death. Um, I love the poet John Donne, and probably his only quote that almost everyone here will know. No man is an island entire of itself. But I want to read the rest of, uh, of that part of the poem. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. See, people know that whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Agatha Christie novels, you know them. But Don wasn't saying you could die at any point. What Don was saying is every time a human being dies, that's you as well. That's part of you. And that's what is being taught here, that human beings are connected. Um, the verses that follow talk about the connection with Christ, and we'll see that. Uh, it's, it, it's not saying, if we sin like Adam, this was what will happen to us, in the same way as it's not saying, if we behave like Jesus or die like Jesus, then we will be saved. It's saying, this is where we are. We are all in Adam. We all sinned in Adam. We're all under the sentence of death. Again, I don't know everyone here. It's impossible to know everyone here. But I know this about every single person here, that you and I are absolutely equal in this. We are equal in death. And it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire, 
It doesn't matter how well known you are. When we lie and when we go to the crematorium, we're equal in death. And that's, that for me is what's not fair. That's for me is what's wrong. That's for me is what hurts because you, you look after children, you, you visit people, you care for people, you try and look after yourself, you, you look after your own body, but you know that your body is going to, to rot. And everything that you do, you know it's going to disappear. And so it, it seems so meaningless and so empty and so vacuous and so pointless. We need something to happen. We need someone to save us. And that's where the rest of these verses go. Now, we're, we won't take so long to go through the rest of them, but let's read um, from verse 13. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Now, Paul is writing largely to Jews, in, and they're saying, well, wait a minute, you're saying there's Adam, and you're saying there's Jesus. What about Moses? Where does Moses fit into this? You're saying there's just two people, just two covenants. What about the covenant with Moses? And what Paul says is this. You know, they're asking, how could people sin without the law of Moses? And he reverses the argument and he says, listen, before Moses, people died. Why did they die? They died because they sinned. They'd sinned in Adam, but they also continued to sin. He's saying sin was in the world before the Mosaic law. And then he goes on to say the point of the Mosaic law was not to save you. It was to show you that you're sinners. He's saying, don't you understand? Death is the proof of sin. And in these verses, he then goes on to use a word, which is, I was going to say it's typos, but Maria will tell me it's typos or something. But you know what, as a type of Christ. And he's saying, Adam is a type of Christ. Adam is a picture of Christ. Now, how is that, how does that work? Because it seems almost as if Paul's going to be embarrassed by that. He's saying there's the two heads. There's Adam, the head of the human race, and basically the head of death. And then there's Christ, the head of the new age, the head of life. And this is a, a, a teaching that Paul repeats, for example, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. So he's really saying, look, there's two human beings who are absolutely essential to all of us. Adam, the dust of the earth, Christ, the human being of heaven. And he contrasts the two and goes on to say, how much more is Christ better? Let's go to verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more... Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus? Now, this is my problem. My problem and the following verse is simply this. How is Jesus 
so much better than Adam? How is Jesus' death on the cross so much better and more powerful, because that's the, the teaching here, it's more powerful than the sin of Adam, when the sin of Adam infected us all and has brought so much havoc and, and wreckage. Is Christ going to save all? Is Christ's salvation better than Adam's trespass? Now, there is a power in Adam's sin, and we need to recognize that. If you do not recognize the power in the sin that Adam committed and the sin that's remained within each one of us, you are not seeing what's happening in the world. We live in a sin-sick world. And I'm going to say this for myself, but it is also true for you, that no matter how hard I try, I cannot get rid of the sin in my own life. And that screws everything up. It affects everyone around. And Paul contrasts at the power of Adam's sin. I mean, it's just, it's just so powerful. But then he says, but Christ is greater. Adam was a fall. Christ is a raising up. Adam brought condemnation. Christ put it all right. Christ brings justification, it's called. Adam brought death. Christ brings eternal life. Adam's world is a world filled with cemeteries. Adam's kingdom is one of deaths. Christ is an eternity filled with life and beauty and glory and love. Adam's one action brought all the sin and misery into the world. Christ's one action forgave it. How much more powerful is Christ? The grace of God is at work in Christ and is far more powerful than any of Adam's. Now, there's so many, when you think about that, there's so many practical and, and powerful implications of that. And what I mean by that is this. Send me to the darkest, blackest situation in this city that nobody can do anything about, and I'm going with the good news of Christ, which is more powerful than any human depravity. So, verses 18 to 21, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Justification and life for all men. It sounds great. I used to read that and think, you know, maybe everyone will be saved after all. Doesn't it say that in the Bible? And you'd think that would be comforting, but for me it was also confusing because the Bible doesn't teach that and Jesus doesn't teach that. So I was thinking, how, how can I understand this? Well, it's a basic axiom. You understand the Bible by the Bible. Paul doesn't contradict himself. Romans 2 verse 12, just earlier, he talks about those who will perish. And he will go on to talk about those who perish. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, he says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, here's my problem that I wrestled with. If Adam's sin sent everyone to hell, how can Jesus' salvation be greater if he doesn't save everyone? How does that work? And the, the answer here is, to me, just so incredibly beautiful. And it's this. 
There are those who are in Adam, there are those who are in Christ. All of us are in Adam, not all of us are in Christ. Now he invites us. He then goes on to say that the many are saved. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life for many, and he's citing Isaiah and Daniel. In my vision at night I looked, Daniel 7, 13, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the cloud of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There is a mentality, and you can imagine this in Rome. We're a small, wee group of people. We've just got to survive and hold on till heaven. And Paul comes with this teaching which blows that to smithereens and says, don't you get it? Jesus came and the many. Now, I'll, I'll return to that in a moment, but I just want to continue to kind of set this scene because he, he, he says, you know, look, the law can't save you. The law makes sin worse, but grace is going to reign through righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. How? This is what someone's called the triumph of the grace of God in the face of human wickedness. And I'll explain it in this way, using what's here. We talk about fairness. Well, God could have been just and wiped out the whole human race. Or he could have just, as in Romans 1, left us to our own devices. But he doesn't. He sends Christ. The picture is of Adam setting a fire in the city and destroying the city and Jesus coming and rebuilding. God does not just send grace sufficient to cover our sin. He sends superabundant grace over beyond that. So in Adam, we have this. This is where we're at. This is where we are today. We're in Adam. We all sin. We all put I at the center. The law keeping, the religion cannot Save us. We cannot atone for our sins with good works, and we cannot live without sin. Using a wee bit more theology, our society is a Pelagian society. What does that mean? Nothing to do with fish. A Pelagian society is named after the Welsh monk. I had to have a go at the Welsh for some reason. The Welsh heretic Pelagius, who taught what our society today has accepted that all human beings are fundamentally good. And that there are a few that go wrong, often because of religion or different things, but all human beings are fundamentally good. But that's just not true. One commentator remarks about this, that we need locks on our doors, bars on our windows, and alarm systems for our houses tell us something about human nature. I love Sweden. I think Sweden's a great country, and I don't like when people slag off Sweden. Um, and I think it's got many, many great things and values within it. And one is that they were very hospitable. And because they have, I think, um, because of that, I think the Swedes generally thought, look, we can just welcome as many refugees as we can, and it'll all be fine. But in Malmo today and in Gothenburg today, the police are advising Swedish women, do not go out on your own. They're telling people who used to leave their doors unlocked, don't, please don't do that. Now that's not blaming refugees, it's not an attack on refugees, it's not saying, it's just saying that human beings, no matter the background, 
that we, we are inherently sinful and with certain conditions and all the rest of it, thoughts, philosophies, religions, or whatever, we are going to screw things up. We are going to get things wrong. We are in Adam. We all sin. And I know that because I lock my door before I come out. And I know that because I'm a wee bit nervous about wandering through that. I was just speaking to a man this week, came to see me. He was walking down the street and somebody just came up and just slashed him across the face. That can happen because this is the world that we live in. In Adam, we all sin. I, I, I really find it almost impossible to understand how anyone can deny that. It's so obvious. And I'm not prepared to say, well, there are other people who sin, but it's not me. Because I know that I do. But in Christ, how much greater then? Now, there, this is where this completely knocked me for six. In terms of worldwide, in terms of our evangelism, in terms of St. Peter's, in terms of the CU mission... I think we've bought into a narrative as the Christian church which is wrong and which demeans Christ. And I know many fine evangelical churches that what they're doing is they're cowering, cowering, because they think this world is such a terrible place and oh, we've got the gospel and isn't it wonderful and we want people to be saved. But they don't really believe what it says here. I uh, got a, a, a tweet this week, which wasn't very nice, and I'll leave out the bad bits of it, but it says, pews are entering exactly because the younger generation are critically thinking for themselves, David, you do, 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 do. Uh, think, people are voting with their feet, religion in the West seems irrelevant to the, to the young, and so on. Well, I was able to respond, and I said, uh, come on Sunday, and you'll see a packed church with lots of young people. It's not true. On the other hand, sometimes it is true because of um, I think people turning away from the gospel. But there is also a mentality, and it's a mentality that came in into the British church and the American church at the end of the 19th century, and it's kind of the remnant mentality. We're the remnant holding on. The world is a terrible place, and we've just got to hold on until Jesus comes, and then he'll make things better. Interesting. I'm going to quote Calvin here. Something that you'd be a bit shocked that Calvin would say. I, I, I rechecked this because I thought, did he really say this? And he did. The grace of Christ belongs to a greater number than the condemnation contracted by the first man. Or another theologian called Hodge says this, the gospel of the grace of God has proved itself much more efficacious in the production of good than sin in the production of evil. The benefits of redemption will far outweigh the evils of the fall. This is here clearly asserted by Paul. There was a wonderful missionary to the Jews called Anna Sutherland, Christian witness to Israel. She's from Brora, my original charge. And when I was ordained and inducted to Brora, you think it's a lovely wee highland place. You know, it's just idyllic. It's just wonderful. It's the kind of brigadoon that, you know, people from the south of England buy hotels and think they're going to live in paradise forever. And they last about 18 months on average. Literally, that's how often they lasted. Um, because Broer had 2,000 people, but had 60 alcoholics. Broer is the only place I've ever been where we've, Mance has been firebombed. You know, it's, it, it, it's not idyllic. Sin's the same everywhere, whether it's in the beautiful highlands or in the slums of the cities. And Anna was telling me some things about Broer. 
And then she said, this is God's verse for Brora. And she quoted Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And it's the AV version, which sounds to me so much better, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. You see, you can have the mentality of what I would call Dunkirk or D-Day Christians. Now, Dunkirk Christians are, to me, people who are getting out of there. Let's escape by the skin of our teeth. Let's just hope we survive. Let's maintain things. D-Day Christians are those who are invading the enemy's territory. They're the ones who are taking on the might of the enemy. And I honestly believe this. I think our vision is pathetic. I think the free church's vision is pathetic. I think the vision of evangelical churches overall is pathetic. I think we're happy with, you know, semi-full churches or surviving or whatever. And I, I just, I think that is absolutely dishonoring to Christ. Paul is writing to a handful of people in a city of a million, most of whom are pagans, and he says... Christ's death is greater and more powerful than all, and Jesus will reign. Jesus is the king. Jesus will reign. I happened to visit um, my friend Paul Reese in Charlotte Chapel this week, and it's just lovely. Paul, to me, is always so encouraging. They bought a church in the West End of Edinburgh that seats 700. They're absolutely full. I have a friend in another free church who went and who's doing quite well in his church. And when he went into Charlotte Chapel and he saw what happened, he thought, my goodness, I'm thinking far too small. And he was right. But what I loved about Paul was Paul's not sitting there thinking, we've got 750 people. He's thinking, how do we have two service? How do we reach 5,000 people? He's hoping to plant another 10 or 20 churches in Edinburgh in the next 10 years. And you might think that's empire building and you might think that's grandiose. No, it's not. That's gospel Christianity. That's belief in Jesus. That's belief in the gospel and in the good news. Listen, if you think by hunkering down, you're going to hold on to what you've got. You, you, you do not understand the power of sin, the power of the devil, the power of darkness in your own heart. And you absolutely do not understand the power of the gospel. You don't. I, I, I confess this. I, I was beginning to think, you know, we just got to hang on. I was thinking, you know, we hope to survive. Um, we grow a church. And, you know, to be honest, sometimes churches grow because people come from other churches and they're not happy and so on. And there's good and bad things uh, about that. But I suspect that most of us do not expect to see the gospel flourishing amongst non-Christians, amongst our neighbors. When did you last pray for your neighbors to come to know the Lord? Maybe you've even given up on your family, except for the occasional desperate prayer. Paul challenged me by his passion and his vision. But this encourages me more. It's not a passion and a vision that's driven by wishful thinking. It's a passion and a vision that's driven by the fact that grace will reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, there's a tremendous encouragement for us in our evangelism. For the folks in Charleston, Christ will reign. For the CU, 25,000 students in Dundee and Abertay universities, and what, a hundred in the CU? It's pathetic, isn't it? 
Jim Turner and I from Central Baptist, we were talking one time and we said, even if we're 10%, it would be 2,500 students in the churches in Dundee. Well, Jesus will reign. You go out with the gospel. At Abertay this week, I was at a lunch bar and there was just half a dozen of us. There were two non-Christians. Wonderful Abertay CU to have those, those two non-Christians and the, the questions that came. Who knows what one of those non-Christians coming to believe and the ripple effect that that may have. Why? Not because Abertay CU are great, but because Jesus shall reign. This is why Jesus died and he will see the travail of his soul and he will be satisfied. I could go on, but I won't. Let me just say something about those of us who are Christians and then say something to those of you who are not yet believers. Lloyd-Jones says this, look at yourself in Adam. Though you've done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you declared to be righteous. That is the parallel. (laughs) Can you see how brilliant that is? Look at yourself in Christ. Though you have done nothing to deserve it, you are declared to be righteous. If you are in Christ, everything is forgiven. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace reigns in your life. Grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That should so encourage you as a Christian. Yes, look at your sin. Yes, see all the difficulties and problems. Yes, the concerns and the worries and everything else. But grace reigns through righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, your troubles come from the fact that you're in Adam. But what Paul is teaching is that what Christ has done for you is far greater than what's happened to you in Adam. And when you think about all the garbage that's in your life because of Adam, because of sin, because of your sin and other people's sin, it's mind-blowing to think that Jesus is greater than that and more powerful than that. And for those of you who are not yet believers, you are in Adam, that's true, but are you in Christ? If you're not a believer, you're not. Thomas Goodwin says this, in God's sight, there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all other men hanging at, as he puts it, their girdle strings. I'm gonna take this back to the cross because there, if you like, the two men meet. Their truth and righteousness meet. There are the two humanities meet in that one person. Just as in Adam you sinned, so in Christ You were there on the cross, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Horatius Boner, the great free church hymn writer, said this, "'Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Oh, I've never done anything against God. I've never done anything against Jesus. I'm sorry." But your sin, every sin, was a nail in Christ. You nailed him to that tree. You and me and not one human being can walk away from that. But Christ accepted it and did it so that grace might reign through righteousness. Christ did it so that when we come to him, he accepts us and he forgives us and we are in him. And grace reigns through righteousness. The devil may have thought that on the cross he finally had defeated and destroyed the work of God, humanity. And instead what happened was a human being was dying on the cross to save humanity. 
And that's what the gospel is. And you have a choice. You're in Adam. You don't have a choice about being in Adam, but you have a choice about being in Christ. And you can decide to be in Christ. And you know, maybe you're not a Christian and you're here. It's the first time you've heard all this and some of it is like, whoa, this is way beyond my pay grade. Right, it's way beyond my pay grade. Seriously, I find this utterly amazing and I've been studying it for 40 odd years. But it's true and it's wonderful. And if you come to Christ, if you give your life to Christ, you are in Christ, you are forgiven, and all those enemies, death, sin, everything else, they are ultimately defeated. Why would you stay away? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that this this incredible sorrow and suffering that comes from human sinfulness in Adam and through us has been overcome by your death on the cross, by the gift of Jesus Christ, God so loved that he gave. And thank you that wherever sin reigns in the world or abounds in the world, we have grace to superabound. And may it be that all of us would know that forgiveness and that grace And may it be that each of us would see the world through your eyes and that we may see a multitude which no one can count who will be worshiping and adoring you in heaven and help us, our God, in a day which seems to be one of small things, to look for the great things and to live for them. In your name, amen. I was going to sing Man of Sorrows. I was going to do what I shouldn't do. I was going to do what Annabel does with food, which is apologize that this wonderful meal that she's cooked isn't, isn't quite as perfect. as. And I was going to apologize for taking too long. But I'm not going to because this is so important. And it's so, honestly, I'm so burdened by it. And I was, I was so thankful to God for this week, for a friend who came and sat in my house and just spoke some words that he didn't know were of great comfort, and then to read this and then to meet with Paul and as well, just to, to realize that we're, we're just, we have the victory. The Lord will reign, and, and just to go out in that hope in whatever lies ahead in this week. It's a hope that is certain. So we're going to sing the song, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's stand and sing this and then please remain standing for the benediction.